Hey, folks. The January 6th committee is back in the news this week. In a new court filing, the committee argues that former President Donald Trump and his allies may have committed crimes by seeking to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Meanwhile, new reporting indicates that the Manhattan DA's criminal investigation into Trump's business dealings is unraveling with the recent resignations of the two lead prosecutors on the matter. And former Attorney General Bill Barr is working to rehabilitate his reputation with the release of his new book. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. How are you, Joyce fans? Lucky to be here. Lucky to be here. Because I was almost on jury duty. You know, how do you feel about serving on on juries, Preet? People have very different views about whether they want to serve or not. I would love to serve. I've always wanted to serve on a jury, especially since I became a lawyer. And then even more so after I became a prosecutor, I think it would be interesting. I think it's a tremendously important public service. And I think I would learn a lot. But I have never, I have never been selected. <laughs> and in this case, I was called for jury duty in Westchester County. There's still a possibility I will have to serve tomorrow. I doubt it. But certainly for a criminal case, the odds are low given what I used to do. And given the fact that the DA uh, used to work with me and is a friend of mine, Mimi Roca, a friend of yours also. So I think the odds are low. And I'm a little bit sad about that. Yeah, I was going to say, if I was Mimi Roke, I wouldn't let you on a jury. No, maybe she would, but the defense, <laughs> I think the defense lawyers, I think the defense lawyers might be concerned about bias, although I don't have any. Yeah, and you know, all joking aside, um, as a prosecutor, I sometimes, you know, wouldn't mind having somebody from the other side on a jury, just because you knew that they would be scrupulously fair and they would understand what was at stake. So good luck. Maybe. What do you mean on the other side? Well, a defense lawyer, because oh. I was always a prosecutor. I was never a criminal defense lawyer. My rule of thumb was I, I didn't like lawyers on juries because, you know, not knowing which way they would feel about a case, they might have disproportionate influence. Yeah. So I, I didn't like that. That's definitely always the risk. You know, I was always so busy keeping engineers off of my juries. <laughs> they made me nervous. Wait, why? Because I thought engineers were good on juries. I, I didn't like having engineers because they always wanted two plus two to equal four. And, you know, sometimes in a criminal case, two plus two equals 4.1. And engineers would struggle with that. Um, I noticed that with my law students, too. So I always wasted my strikes keeping engineers off. Did you have a lot of engineers in your pool? Yeah, you know, we <laughs> did. <laughs> Wow. Birmingham is is sort of an engineering town in some ways. Um, and so, yeah, you would always get a couple of engineers on your Venari. How about accountants? And you said Venari again. We're not going to go through this debate. Yeah, I know. And I'm right. That's not how um, we say it in the North. Accountants didn't really bother me as much. You know, my favorite juror was always sort of a middle-aged mama because you can't lie to a, a middle-aged woman who's raised some kids. That's interesting. No, I thought accountants were good because they were careful, meticulous. But, you know, who knows? These are all speculative, and you never know. We all have our biases about juries, right? Yes. So by the way, before we get started on the news of the week, uh, I want to announce something. I think people may have heard that we are very excited about our first live show, Stay Tuned Live, since before the pandemic, March 31st in New York City. 
We have two special guests. We have actor, director, producer, Ben Stiller, who, by the way, people may not realize he's been a longtime advocate for refugees around the world. So he'll be with us. And we will also have, I think, one of the most notable voices on the issues relating to Ukraine and Russia in the world and former grandmaster, chess player, Gary Kasparov. So me with Ben Stiller and Gary Kasparov live in New York City, March 31st. You can get tickets at cafe.com slash events. I think that'll be a lot of fun. It really sounds great. I'm a huge fan of both of them, and I regret that I teach on Thursdays, so I'm going to have to miss out. I hope a lot of folks will be there and live tweet about it so I can hear about it in real time. Do you think I should have the two of them play chess? <laughs> How do you think that would go? Uh, you know, I think one of them might have a slight edge. <laughs> Gary could probably play the entire audience simultaneously. I think that's Maybe true, we'll right? That. It's like a, a vision from um, Queen's Gambit where she would walk around the room playing everybody. <laughs> yes. Anyway, March 31st, cafe.com slash events. I'm really excited about it. Hope to see you there. You know, as fascinating as it was, the other thing I will say as a preliminary matter is it's also very disappointing. Yes, it is. It is incredibly unusual to hear sort of real-time, fly-on-the-wall reporting about disagreements within a prosecutorial team. And that mean, and it only could have caught me. Sometimes we say developments in an investigation can be learned by or, or, or you know, given to reporters by a number of different folks, including folks on the defense side or by witnesses or by the prosecution or by the law enforcement agency, and you don't know. These details could only come from inside that office. And it means that people feel strongly enough that they're violating, you know, a you know, a, a pretty rigid rule against talking about inside deliberations with the press. And and that I don't know how how do you feel about that? I think it's an ethics violation, or if it's not, it should be. I mean, I I had this reaction, I will confess, I was reading the story, and on the one hand, I couldn't stop reading because I wanted to know all the details. And on the other hand, I thought, wow, if I had had somebody on my team who had gone to the press with this sort of, of detail, I would have been really pissed. I mean, you know, we had cases in which there were leaks. There's an FBI agent in a case that I oversaw who was investigated criminally for leaks to the press. But I'm not aware of any time when, you know, non-unanimous ultimate decisions were leaked to the press so that the one side that didn't like the final result or the resolution was disgruntled enough to talk about it. So, you know, I'm not saying I know who talked or the, the scope of the talking and, and reporters are very, very good and smart. And I know some of these reporters personally at piecing together th things and connecting the dots. But it does indicate, <laughs> uh, you know, a significant amount of rancor, which I guess we should have assumed when we had, you know, sort of a, a abrupt resignations by two people in concert with each other, that there are strong feelings here. Now, you know, my, my other, my substantive reaction is similar to the one I had earlier. And that is, look, I think in no way, shape or form was this felt to be a slam dunk prosecution by anyone in that office. Even the things you hear about the two prosecutors who stepped down, one of them said, I believe, one of them is quoted as saying, and again, I can't vouch for the veracity of it, but it sounds credible to me, that it's a righteous case and we should, I'm paraphrasing here, but, but essentially we should take our shot. Not that this is a slam dunk 
winning case and it would be absurd not to bring it because we will absolutely prevail, but that there's, there's enough to get it to a jury, enough possibility to get it to the jury successfully enough that we will prevail and secure a conviction. And another issue we talk about in my class that's basically about the ethics of prosecutorial decisions is, and I wonder what your view of this is, and I don't think there's any right answer. What is the threshold of likelihood of success that is required before you proceed in the case, and particularly in a, in a case that will be the most watched criminal case maybe of the century? You know, one way of thinking about that is to put yourself in the position of an appellate judge reviewing a conviction and thinking about what standard those judges would use deciding whether to affirm or reverse the conviction. And judges are very deferential on appeal to the jury's decision about which facts to accept and which facts to reject. So as long as any reasonable jury could have reached the verdict that a jury reached, then the court is going to typically leave it undisturbed. And unless they look at it, and, and this sometimes happens in cases, and they, they just say, look, the evidence is wildly insufficient. No jury could have credited this evidence. Key witnesses just weren't believable or, or, or whatever it is. And, and then judges can reverse a case on sufficiency of the evidence grounds. But that's pretty rare. And I'm honestly not certain that that's the right standard to use in any event because it's so deferential from a hindsight point of view. I want to be able to look at the evidence and say, I am confident that I can convince a jury to convict on this evidence. And I found Dunn's statement, as it was reported, to be a little bit off-putting because he says, I think we should take our shot because if we don't, we'll be on the wrong side of history. Yeah, I know what that means. And if that's accurate, that's not my job as a prosecutor. I mean, my, my job isn't to be a partisan. My job isn't to worry about historically how I'm going to be viewed. My job is to figure out if the law's on my side and if I've got enough evidence and if that's the case and the equities suggest I should prosecute, then I'm going to go. It's ultimately a gut call. And that's why it's so important that a single individual doesn't make these calls alone. That's why good prosecutors, whether it's a formal indictment review process or an informal rump group that sits around and looks at a case, that you really think not just about how strong your case is, but that you look at the other side's case and that you think about the legal issues. You have to be really committed to getting a 360-degree view, not just to insist on looking only through your own perspective. Yeah, but going back to my question. I thought you were going to let me get away without answering it. No, no, because it's an important one. I don't know the answer to it. And it's something that we've been talking about in my class and we talk about every year and we would talk about it in the office. And it's something that I think the public doesn't really appreciate that we discuss and we analyze. And that is, how confident do you have to be about success to proceed? I think clearly, if you have a 90 or 95% chance of success on a case where you think the person is guilty of the crime, whatever the crime may be, you proceed and that's easy. Let me ask the question a different way. Do you need to be more confident of success less confident of success or the same as in a garden variety case when you're thinking about prosecuting, you know, the most famous defendant in history, a former president of the United States. Does your proof need to be better? Do you have to have more confidence or do you treat it the same way as any other case? I wish that the answer was that you would treat it the same as any other case, but I think in, in reality, it's not. I think particularly in public corruption cases, if you're looking at indicting a senator or a governor, because the case is going to be so high profile, because a loss has the 
potential to do so much damage to the public's confidence in the criminal justice system. I think that these cases do get more scrutiny. I think this case will get more scrutiny, certainly. And in some ways, that's valid. There'll be presumably good lawyering in in sort of a criminal case like this. There are always a lot of really dicey issues when a case comes down to intent and relying on a witness like Michael Cohen, and we should probably talk about that. And so I think as a practical matter, this case gets scrutinized to a higher standard than a typical garden variety case does. Do you disagree? I don't, but it's sort of interesting, right? That, you know, we like to say no one's above the law, and we like to say that everyone is treated equally, and we like to say that every case is the same, and you apply the same principles and the same standards. But when you have something as high profile as this, you know, the prosecutors are people. The office is made up of people who care about success and who care about reputation and who care about public faith and public confidence, that maybe you have to be more sure. And the question is, the other way to put the question is, if you had this quantum of evidence, and and this is just speculation on our part, and it was some, you know, prominent but not household name figure on Wall Street who was being investigated for inflation of assets uh, unlawfully, would they be more likely to pull the trigger And probably the answer is yes, right? I think that's right. I mean, to be fair, we don't know what all of the evidence is. And we don't know, importantly, if they're sitting on anything exculpatory for Trump beyond just his ability to say, well, I didn't know I wasn't involved. Maybe there is something that's exculpatory. But I got to believe that if this was just your average guy that they were looking at, that this would be an indictment. So we talked about one difficulty in showing the intent of Donald Trump, whether he knew or intended for his organization to inflate assets unlawfully. And one is no emails, no texts, so we don't have sort of his own spoken word or written word. But you mentioned some someone else, uh, Michael Cohen. You know, there are two potential cooperators here. One, Alan Weisselberg, who had to be charged ultimately. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. 